0: If you take your Bibles and open to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, we began a study in the life of Abram, more we would say in, in God's work through the life of Abram, Abraham, who he will become. Uh, we've seen Abram called by God, God coming to him in Genesis 12 and giving him promises and Abram's walk of faith and worship in chapter 12. We've also seen Abram as a faithless man. In Egypt, not trusting God, taking matters into his own hands, but we saw him learning some lessons. And in chapter 13, we looked at last week how Abram and faith responded to conflict and dealt with the conflict in a way that honored God. This morning, the title of the sermon is Faith's Response to Victory. It's not conflict this time, it's victory. How is Abram going to respond to God blessing him with a miraculous victory? What's he going to do? And I just want to jump right into the passage and read it uh, together, and and then we will walk through it and try to again seek to apply it to our lives. Now, bear with me. We're going to read these verses, and verses one through eleven are a little rough. Uh, there's a lot of names in here, but I want to read it so that uh, so that Mark and Ruth can hear them, and maybe you know some potential names for a future son um, that's coming soon. But. Um, I am not claiming that I know how to pronounce all these, but what I've always heard is when you read sections like this, you just kind of say it loud and proud and pretend like you know what you're saying. So I'll do my best, uh, and you can correct me afterwards. But Genesis chapter 14, beginning of verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter together. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elessar, Omer, king of Elam, and title king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the salt sea, or we would say the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Shadalai-Omer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Shadallahomer, and the kings who were with him, came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth-Karnaim, and Zazim in Ham, the Amim in Shava kirithim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El-Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon-Tamar. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Sheduleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped and came one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Escol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women of the people or the women and the people after his return from the defeat of Shadaleyomer the king and the kings who were with him The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Anur, Escol, and Mamre take their share. Now, Genesis chapter fourteen. This might be like a step above a genealogy in your mind as you read through these the names of the kings and their military conquests. But this is God's inspired word. It is applicable to our lives. And to be honest, as I've read through this and studied this, we won't even get to all the, the beautiful applications that are in this passage. But I just want to let's walk through this story because it may have not made total sense just in that one reading. So let's think about what's going on here. Here's the, the general gist of what's going on. For about 12 years, these kings, Bira, Birsha, Sinab, and Shemer, they had served Shedolayamr, who is, that's, that's the best I can do as far as pronouncing his name. Uh, he was the king of Elam, which is a territory that was, that was pretty far north. Sodom and Gomorrah were kind of on the southeast side of the Dead Sea, if you know your, is, geography of Israel. And, and these lands were in, in the north. We had these other four kings, the kings of so, the five kings, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. These five kings ruled over there those areas, but they were under uh, Shadréomer. He's he's kind of rules these territories, and he's put these five guys in charge of these different cities, cities these different territories. And what they were to do is they they ruled over these territories when Shadréomer wasn't there, and they sent tribute to him. So they would send. The produce of the land or some of their wealth, and they would give that to him, and he would uh, kind of offer some protection and watch over them. And for 12 years, this existed these five kings under this one king. But in the 13th year, they decided to rebel. It doesn't really say why they rebelled. Maybe they had their king's picnic, and they discussed their frustrations with Shedeleomer, and they said, We're just, we're tired of this. Maybe the produce, they didn't have as much. Uh, as many things that year. And they said, we're not paying things to this guy. He's just up there. He never comes down here anymore. He's not in tune with what we're doing here. And so they rebelled. And it says for a whole year, for the 13th year, they really didn't hear anything. But what they didn't know was that way up north, Shadalomer had called a council with his three friends, uh, Amraphel, Ariok, and Tidal, these other kings and his allies. And these four determined that they couldn't let these other territories rebel against them. So these three kings joined with Sennacherib because they were allies, but also because you can't allow an uprising to happen. Because what if what if this is successful? What if these rebels succeed? Then maybe there's pockets all over the place. Everyone starts rebelling, and no one returns. So they decide that they are going to uh, they need to deal with these rebels. So in the 14th year, remember they'd served for 12. They rebelled in the 13th year. In the 14th year, these four kings set out to, we might say, flex their collective muscles and show how strong they were and quell this rebellion. So they don't hit these five kings first, but instead they kind of go to the north and then to the east and then further south and just kind of take over some different territories and show their strength. And then it says that they came up north and landed in a valley where it was four kings, these four kings from the north who were uh, of higher rank against the five kings of sodom gomorrah and the other cities and so they kind of clash in this valley now we don't let this deceive you we've got five kings versus four and these five kings are in their homeland and so we think they might have you know some sort of home field advantage and there's more of them but they are just they're crushed completely uh they are they are embarrassingly overrun these five kings or these four kings just come before them in this display of human strength the five kings run away they're falling into pits that are in their own land and the ones that didn't fall in the pits just ran into the hill country so it was a complete defeat and as they they fled the we might call them the fearsome four they take possession and they take the provisions of all the rebellious five kings they completely plunder the city so they just totally crush everyone and as we hear these these events, we're hearing one one city is going to stand out to us, having just read chapter 13. We hear about the king of Sodom. If you remember back to chapter 13, when, when Abram said, hey, the whole land is before you, Lot, choose wherever you want to go. Lot says, well, I'm going to go down towards the land of Sodom. And so this is where Lot is. He was in this area, had separated himself from, from Abram his tent was there near the city of Sodom when we left him in chapter 13 and so now we're wondering Lot has slowly kind of become part of our family he's part of Abram's family and so we say when well, we hear something bads going on in Sodom I wonder what's happening to Lot it's kind of the same way you know we uh, heard in the news recently about the floods in the Philippines and so everyone has family in the Philippines they say I wonder how my family is and so we might say the same thing that here they're in Sodom. This this could be bad for Lot. What's going to happen to Lot? How did he fare in the conquest? And we find out in verse 12, it says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So it tells us that Lot, the son of Abram's brother, so Abram's nephew who was living in Sodom, they, they picked up him, they took everything that he had, and they started heading north already we find out that Lot's decision to separate from Abraham from Abram has not worked out well for him. He had planned we see to dwell outside of the city, but when we find him here uh, in chapter 14, he is he is in the city. He's been caught up with the wars of this place. He's been captured by the enemies of that specific land that he was in. He's outside of the land, he's separated from Abram, this man who is to be blessed by God, and now things are going Very poorly. I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but I think what we can see kind of as a just a principle that's here related to Lot is this nearness to wickedness is foolishness. Nearness to wickedness is foolishness. Lot has gone near to the wicked. You remember how Sodom is described at the end of um, in verse thirteen of chapter thirteen? Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is not a good place to be, and Lot has decided to put his camp near them he 's not where he 's supposed to be. Remember, we watched him as he made this decision back in chapter thirteen, and he made it with he, he was walking by sight, he was not walking by faith, he was walking with worldly wisdom, making this decision that this is what is best for me. This is the area that I should move into because it will it will bless me the most. But now he's become tied up with the affairs of, of this city, and he should have nothing to do with this city. Nearness to wickedness is foolishness. We as Christians, we're prone to ask some, some strange questions sometimes. We ask things like, how how close can I get to this evil, to this wickedness without it affecting me? And what can I do? What can I watch? What can I say? What can I read? What can I eat? What can I drink? What can I think and it still be permissible and it still not be sin how how close to the edge of the cliff can i get without falling off and getting into trouble the nearer we get to wickedness though the more foolish we are because the more likely it is that we just get caught up in what is going on in these wicked places we don't want to get Near the edge. These are the wrong questions to ask. I remember hearing Paul talk about that. Some people would say, how far is too far? And he says, that's not the right question. The right question is, how can I glorify God with my life? And, and, and Lot seems to be saying, I can go close to that city and it won't affect me. But slowly he gets caught up in it. And when the enemies of that city come, they just take him and everything that he has with him with them. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, a lot of times we say that, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, Lot knew it was the wrong place. He shouldn't have been there anyways. And when you're in the wrong place, then wrong times come upon you. So Lot should have never been there. In our house, we, we've read some some books, and uh, one book in particular about parenting talks about something called the, the circle of blessing. Uh, God had made some promises to Israel. You remember he says, if they would obey the law, then, then things would go well with them, and their days would be long upon the earth, if they obeyed God's law. And so we talk to our kids sometimes and say, if you obey, if you do what is right, then you're in this this circle where there is blessing. Things will go well with you, and your days will be long upon the earth. I always use the example of saying, if you obey us, if you don't run out in the middle of the street, then things will go well for you, and your days will be long upon the earth. But if you disobey, what happens? If you go outside the circle of blessing, things will not go well for you. And if you run out in the middle of the street, your days may not be long upon the earth. And what's Lot's finding out here is he has left the, the circle of blessing. He's, he's separated himself from Abram. He's gone out of the land of blessing. He's gone close to wickedness, and nearness to wickedness is foolishness, because you just get caught up in the midst of it. God's plans, his promises are, are for our good. So we should not walk with worldly wisdom. So all of this is is all this story of these kings has pushed us. We, we find all this information out, but really it's to get us to verse twelve. Lot get caught gets caught up in this whole conquest. So now we say, what's what's going to happen to Lot? Lot's gotten taken away. Now is this is this it for Lot? Has he gone to the north, and we're never going to see him or his family again? Well, it tells us in verse thirteen that in the confusion of the war, one man escape. This is great. It's like something out of a movie. This one guy takes off. Uh, Maybe he was a friend or an acquaintance of lots, but he escapes. Maybe he knew where he was going, maybe he didn't, but he lands near the large oak trees in the land of Hebron on the land of a a man named Mamre. Now when we hear that, we remember that's that's the last verse of chapter 13. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is where Abram's at. So this man escapes, and in God's sovereignty he lands in this land where Abram is. He's, he's there, and we find that this is where Abram's at. Abram is there by the oaks of Mamre, and it says Mamre the Amorite, this man, and his brother Eschul and Anor. So these are three guys, and it says they were allies of Abram. So Abram's made friends in the land. These three guys are now Abram's allies. So we might imagine, remember this escapee, he comes running. If you want to picture it in your mind, I like to try to picture these stories. He comes running from a distance, and maybe Abram sees him running. He's he's kind of running with the last of his energy, and he, he gets to Abram and sort of collapses at Abram's feet. And Abram maybe calls for a servant to bring some water, and they bring water to this man, and he says he starts to tell the story of what was going on, why he's there, the valley of Sidim, this battle that happened and and the kings were there, the king of, of Gomorrah and different places. And then he says that the king of Sodom was there. And suddenly Abram says, oh, I wonder what, you know, Lot was in that area. And he so Abram maybe asks the guy, do, do you know about a guy named Lot? Have you heard of him? And the escapee responds that, that Lot and his whole family were taken with this army. They are up, at, they, they've, they've taken off. And Abram says, well, which way did they go? And the guy says they went north somewhere. So time is of the essence at this point. Abram hears that his nephew has been taken by this marauding army, and, and so he gathers his trained men quickly. Isn't that amazing? It says, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. How, how great is Abram's wealth we start to see here. He has 318 guys that are just trained to defend his territory. They, they've been raised up, I don't know what sort of, Um, battle tactics they were trained in but these were trained men and so he gets his 318 men he calls for his allies his friends um, we saw them Mamre um, and then Mamre's two brothers uh, are their names Eskel and Aner and so all these four guys with all the trained men that they have they start heading north and they end up going all the way to Dan and if you were to look on a map the, the city is it wouldn't have been called Dan at that time but Dan is is on the northernmost part of Israel. They traveled a long way. They were chasing them down for a while. And they get there, and it says um, in verse 15, it tells us what Abram did. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoba, north of Damascus. We don't know all that happened, but it kind of reminds me of Gideon, if you remember that. Gideon had his small army, 300 men, and they surround the city. And maybe maybe Abram sort of pulled a Gideon, and he he made it look like their army was a lot bigger than it was and and created some confusion so that these five kings remember these five kings they have not lost a battle yet they're undefeated and and they have now just decimated these five kings they've gone north and so abram shows up who's just he's abram he's got 318 men he's got his his allies with him but they defeat this army a sneak attack in the middle of night they split apart and they defeat this army and send them running off. And it says then in verse 15 that he, or verse 16 that he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. So, Abram is the nearly 80 year old military commander, uh, and he defeats this indestructible army and rescues his nephew. One of the thing that's, things that's going on here, you remember the promise that God made to Abram. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Even though Lot is separated from Abram, he is he is near to Abram in, in a way. He is he is part of Abram. And so Lot is blessed through Abram. Lot is not where he's supposed to be and Abram gets tied up in this because of what Lot has done, but because he is his nephew, he is he is blessed along with Abram. Not only is is Lot blessed by Abram, but these these three guys, his three allies, are blessed. We find at the end of the chapter that they receive the share of this this victory. So they come along with Abram, and they are blessed because they're they're with him. They share in the spoils of war. Now, I think that this is all leading us to verses 17 through 24. So this is, if you might say, this is kind of our introduction. I know it's kind of a long introduction but what's going on here is we have these these kings and there's this this battle these battles going on and it leads us to the to verse 12 where lot comes into the picture and now that lot's in the picture abram gets pulled into the picture and abram gets pulled into the picture and then defeats this army god brings victory and in verses 17 through 24 abram is faced with the choice how is he going to respond to this victory that god has just given him it tells us in verse 17 that, that after the defeat of this king, all these kings, they, they went back. Abram is back um, in the land of Hebron. And he goes out to this valley, valley of Sheba, the king's valley. He goes out and he's met by two other kings. So these two guys come out. We have the king of Sodom, who was part of this battle. And then we have uh, another king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. The, the king of Sodom, remember, Sodom is this place that's known for wickedness. It's known for people rebelling against God. The king of Sodom comes out and meets Abram, the man of God. And along with the king of Sodom comes the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. We've not met this man before. He hasn't been anywhere else in Scripture, and he's not going to show up again, like we said, until Psalm 110. This is just his one cameo appearance here in uh, in the life of Abram. And so the king of Salem comes out. He seems to come out of nowhere. We find um, there in, in verse 18, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. King of Salem. Salem is a, is a word for peace. He's the king of peace. That's probably a reference to Jerusalem. Um, and so this was the king of, of the area of Jerusalem that would later become the center of worship in Israel. Not only is he said to be a king, but he's said to be a priest. Surely there were priests of false gods, but he's said to be a priest of God Most High. Who is this guy? Melchizedek, he just shows up out of, out of nowhere. And we could spend the next five or even 50 Sundays talking about Melchizedek and his significance and understanding who he is. We'd find ourselves in Psalm 110, and we'd find ourselves in Hebrews. But to be honest, we just don't, we don't have time to really talk about all of that. We need to understand what's his purpose here in Chapter 14. Um, but what we can say is that this man is a type of Christ, that he is a, a foreshadowing of who Christ will be. As a, he is not only a king, but he is a priest that's what that's what the author of Hebrews picks up on that that Jesus is a prophet a priest, and a king uh, this some people actually say that this is a manifestation this is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is something called a a theophany an appearance of God in the old testament that's that's certainly a possibility it's I don't know it's anything that we can be totally sure of but whoever this man is he's a, an example of who God is but Abram now is He's come face to face with another man of God. I don't know if you felt it, but it feels like Abram's been a little lonely up to this point. He's kind of the only guy. Can you imagine after this defeat, you go out to this valley, and you've got the king of Sodom coming out, and then this guy Melchizedek shows up, the king of Salem, and he's a priest, and he's, he's a follower of God Most High. And when he comes out, the words that he gives to Abram are right here in verse 19, and he blessed him. And said, Imagine what this would have felt like for Abram. He's living in the midst of a pagan land, and the words that come out of this king's mouth are Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God sends Melchizedek out, and Melchizedek speaks blessing into Abram's life in the midst of this victory. He doesn't praise Abram. He doesn't talk about how great Abram was or his military strategies. He says, God is great. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. This is the the Most High God, the one who has made heaven and earth. Shadrach, Omer, and the kings of Sodom, no one else is in charge of the earth. God rules and possesses the earth. Remember we saw that uh, not too long ago that God is called the Lord of hosts he's the God of armies he's the one that that gives victories and so in verse 20 God should be blessed because God delivered abram's enemies into abram's hand it wasn't abram and Melchizedek shows up almost as a reminder abram don't get a big head about this you had victory but why did you have victory because of God most high he gave you the victory he's the possessor of heaven and earth he will be blessed he's delivered your enemies into your hand Now, opposed to this, so we have have the king of Salem, we have Melchizedek coming out, and then we have the king of Sodom coming out. The king of Sodom is basically the exact opposite of Melchizedek. The king of Sodom comes out, he offers no thanks to this man who has just traveled how many miles to get up to Dan and to deliver his people and to restore all his goods. He doesn't say anything. All he says is basically, Abram, you can have the goods, just give me the people, Okay. I mean, it's just this really crass individual, which we shouldn't be surprised at, right? I mean, Sodom is the place where wickedness is reigning. And so the king of Sodom, he's probably going to be that way. It's sort of par for the course if this is the king of Sodom. And so he comes and, and he says, Abram, you take the goods of the land. So here's the picture that we're pushing towards. We've got Abram there and these two guys come out to him, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And he has an option for what, who he's going to respond to. The king of Salem says, here, Abram, you take the spoils of war. You were victorious. You can have this. And it may have posed an option for some of those lands that they got, that Abram would have been able to take possession of part of the land that was that was his, God says. And then you've got the king of Salem who comes out and says, God has given you the victory, Abram. Worship him. Abram has a choice. We read the temptation of Christ this morning from Matthew four because it seems so similar, doesn't it? That Jesus is there and he has he has a couple of options. The devil comes out and says, You can you can have whatever you want. Just just take it. You have the power to do it. Take it with your own hand right now. And Jesus says that he's submitting to his father's will. But Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? I mean he knew the path was not going to be easy, that the way of blessing, the way of following his father's will was going to be hard. And he has an option in that moment. Who is he going to listen to? And it feels very much the same way that Abram has this option. You've been victorious, Abram. Now, are you just going to grab everything that you can? Are you going to take everything because you've got it with your own hands? Or are you going to submit to God? Are you going to worship him and see it as coming from him alone? What's the choice that he's going to make? We see what he does in two different ways. The first is that he offers a tithe. It says at the end of verse 20, Abram gave a tenth of everything, to Melchizedek. It's not as much that he's honoring Melchizedek, but he's honoring God, this this man who is a priest of the Most High God. He offers this man a tithe. He says, God gave me everything. Everything that I have is from God, and so I'm giving it back. A tithe, an offering, when we take offerings, this is not an opportunity for you to give back, to, to pay God back in some way. But rather it's a recognition that God has given us everything anyways. And I'm lifting him up. I'm honoring him with it. That. And that's what Abram does here. The second thing is is he as the king of Sodom comes and says, You can have everything, just give me um, just give me the people. Abram says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I've I made a promise. I swore that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you can't say, I have made Abram. Rich, when do you think Abram made that promise? I wonder when he raised his hand and said, Lord, I won't take anything from these people. I wonder if it was when he left Egypt and landed back between Bethel and Ai and worshipped the Lord again. I wonder if this is the lesson that he learned when he was in Egypt. Because remember, he went down there and with his own ingenuity, his own mind. He said, I'm going to deceive Pharaoh. I'm going to trick him. So that so that I can take the land, and so there won't be a threat to the promise that's going on, and everything went bad because Abram was trusting in himself. I just wonder if he came back from that and said, "God, I'm never doing that again." And he got all this plunder from Egypt, but would it serve as an opportunity for for people to look and say, "Oh, wow, Pharaoh made you rich." He doesn't want that. He wants people to look at him and say. The only way that it's possible that that man is rich, that that man is great, that that man owns this land is because God has done it. And so he raises his hand and he says, God, I'm not taking anything from anyone. You give it to me in the way that you want to give it to me. So he rejects that. In the midst of this this land that's described in verses 1 through 11, I mean, just you think about how everyone is fighting and warring. And Abram shows up, and he has this opportunity. He can just take all these goods. How strange that he just says, I'm not taking any of it. I just want my nephew, and I'm heading back to my land, and and that's all I want. It's such a contrast. He and Melchizedek stand in exact opposite to all these other kings that we see. They're all fighting. They're all grabbing. They're all trying to take this land, and it's, it's going back and forth between different places. And Abram just fights, and he says, I want my nephew. You can have all the goods. God will bless me in his own good time. I think this is the main point. I think the point of this passage is is this, and I've been trying to distill it down, but I think that this is it. Our lives are to be a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. Our lives are to be a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. Everything that we have, anything good that comes to us is from God. It's not from anyone else. And our lives are to be a witness of that truth. I don't know about you, I don't really watch much NASCAR. You got Any big NASCAR fans? I don't watch any NASCAR, to be totally honest. But what I've seen, you've all seen their cars, right? And they're covered with all these advertisements. Usually they've got one big one on the hood, maybe the big McDonald's M or... I don't know who the big sponsors are. But then all around that car, there's just what seems like thousands of little stickers, right? These are all the sponsors. These are all the people that make it possible for this driver to go out and drive in circles for 500 times, I guess. So that's that's the point. These are all the, the sponsors. And so if someone wins a race, they get up there, and they probably thank that main sponsor first. But then they probably have this list of a 1,000 people. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, you know, this person that provided my – brakes, and this person that provided my wheels, and you know, and so they're thanking all these sponsors. Everyone else has, has made this possible for me, and as I think about Abram, I think, you know, if Abram was a NASCAR driver, you'll never hear that in any other sermon, I don't think, right there, if Abram was a NASCAR driver. Um, he would just. There wouldn't be. There'd be no other sponsors. He doesn't want any other stickers on his car. He wants God to be glorified. God got me here. No one else had anything to do with this. It was God. You can't put Pharaoh's sticker on the side of my NASCAR, and you can't put the King of Sodom's. They. They didn't do anything for me. It was. It was God alone. He's the one that got me. He. He is the one that has given me victory. It's. Uh, this is. It, it's so unique. In this land where everyone's just trying to grab and say, I'll get whatever I can, whenever I can, from whoever I can, whenever I can. And Abram says, no, I'm going to wait for God to bless me because if I wait, then he'll be glorified. He'll be seen. There. I don't want anyone else to say, oh, I made Abram great. It's difficult, though, right? But when do we reject blessings and when do we accept blessings? What if this was the way that God wanted to give Abram the land? That he'd gone and defeated and the king of Sodom came and said, hey, I'm going to give you these possessions. And that was the way that God was going to bless him. It's hard to know, and I think it's really based on situations. But I think one of the principles, uh, there's a couple principles I think we can take. When do you reject a blessing? I think one is that when it comes from a, a wicked source. When it comes from, it comes from this king of Sodom. Uh, we've talked about Sodom, how wicked they were. And, and he wants to bless Abram. What's that going to look like? Well, my people might look and say, you know, Abram and, and the king of Sodom—they're kind of they're buddies. They're—they're—they've they're, got an alliance together, and and the king of Sodom has blessed Abram. And Abram says, you know, I don't want anything to do with Sodom. He's kind of learned from Lot, hasn't he? Nearness to wickedness is foolishness. And he says, I don't want anything to do with that. There's ways in our lives to get victory. There's ways in our lives to get wealth. There's ways in our lives to receive different kinds of blessings, but it associates us with with wickedness. It's stuff that we don't want to be associated with. We don't want people to look at us and say, well, they're only that way because they participate in this, and it defames God. It takes away um, what he has done. I think that's one way that we think about how we accept or reject blessings. We reject it if it comes from a wicked source. But I think the principle here mainly is when it poses a threat to God's glory. When, when we're, if we receive something, it's going to look like, like someone else did it other than God. And again, I think that's difficult to discern. But it's all under this idea our lives are to be a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. How can we see that happen in our lives? I think that's something just to really meditate on. And to think on that, what what's that going to look like for me? What will that look like for our church? I'm reminded of some of the great missionaries of the past, guys like George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. These guys had a unique approach to missions. Mueller, if you remember, started an orphanage, and he started this orphanage, and he said he did it he purposely was not going to seek seek out finance for it he wasn't going to go to people and say i'm starting this orphanage give me money he wasn't going to send out letters he wasn't going to advertise and let people know these are the needs that he has but rather he said i'm going to start this orphanage and i'm going to pray and i'm going to ask that god will provide for everything that we need and if you read parts of george Mueller's autobiography there's all these great stories of bread trucks bread trucks breaking down in front of the orphanage and suddenly the whole orphanage has bread Or, or, you know, the midnight hour where they don't have enough food or they don't have enough money and suddenly a a check comes in the mail for the perfect amount of everything that they need. And he records all this so that he can prove that God takes care of his children and God alone receives the glory. No one else is glorified in the work that George Mueller did. God alone is seen as great. Hudson Taylor, who was a, a pioneer missionary to China, he's the guy that said God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply and he early on said i want to learn how to live by faith i want to learn how to to walk in a way that by faith because i know when i get to china i'm going to have no one to rely on except for god alone i remember reading he was he was in medical school and he had an opportunity to take a nicer house in a better part of town for a cheaper rent and he prayed about the situation and he chose to not take that opportunity he chose rather to stay where he was in in a smaller place paying more money in a rougher end of town because he said, this is going to train me for missions work, and it's going to allow God to be glorified. If I go to this place, then they might say, if I'm putting words in his mouth, if I go to this place, they might say that this person made Hudson Taylor great. This person helped him, and he wanted to step back and say, I know I want God alone to receive the glory. And his mission work throughout his life was always, it was so similar to, to George Bueller. They were contemporaries, and they just waited on God. And God continued to provide. God continued to meet their needs. Is that the way every missionary should do it? Is it wrong for someone to stand up here and say, I'm going to this country and I need this much money to survive there? No, it's not wrong. But I think we need to look for ways at times that will test our faith and lift up and show the greatness of God. There are times in our lives where we're put into situations and they're difficult situations. And they're a place where we say, I've got nothing. The only person I can rely on is God. And when he brings us through those situations, he is glorified. And those happen. They just, they just happen in life. We don't have a choice. But sometimes I think we have choices. Sometimes I think the king of Sodom and the king of Salem come out, and we have a choice. We can say, you know what, I'm just going to grab everything that's right here because it's an opportunity that I can, I can just take it all. And I think sometimes God wants us to say, you know what, that's a blessing that I could receive now, but it's just, it's not right. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and see how God is going to provide for me, how God is going to meet my needs. How could God be glorified in a unique way by me waiting and not taking this now? I'm speaking in generalities because it's really hard for me to give you some specifics on this. But I think, again, that general truth, our lives are to be a witness to the truth that everything Every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. Not just as individuals, but as a church. Is there a way that we can put our place, not, not in the in the idea of testing God, but to put us in a place where we say, man, if if anything's going to happen, God's got to do it. In some ways, I think that we have. And we've moved to a new place, and we're seeking to reach out. We're doing things like this, this picnic. We're, we're a little church. We're not... You know, one of the big churches in Louisville, there's a lot bigger churches in Louisville, a lot really big churches in Louisville. <laughs> and we're not one of them, but we're in a place where we can say, you know what, if God does something, if, if something good happens, it's it's because God did it. It's not because, wow, look how attractive we are. Look at Look at all the things that we're doing to try to bring people in. And I think we should do that. We should make efforts. But at the same time, we should always do it with an eye towards saying, how can God be made to look great in our church? How can we do this in a way that would lift him up and help people to see and say it was no one else? It had to be God alone? Our lives are to be a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. And so I think that there's there's two there's two thoughts that I, I just kind of want to leave us with as we as we close this out. The first is that sort of subpoint that nearness to wickedness is foolishness that we shouldn't ask questions like how close can we get to evil without really harming us, or rather we should run away from it. That's not a call to, to be unlike Jesus and to just only have Christian friends and not associate with nonbelievers. Jesus says you'd have to leave the world if you want to do that, but rather to not find ourselves in a place where we get caught up with wickedness, where we get caught up in the evil and, and the, the wars that go along with that. Nearness to wickedness is foolishness. But then this second thing I think is the main idea that we face a choice. We face a choice like Abram faced. We face a choice like David faced. If you think about David winning the opportunity to take out Saul and he chose not to. We face an opportunity like Jesus faced in the midst of his temptation. Am I going to am I going to take what's here? I'm going to take what's offered to me to the detriment of, of my life and, and not for the glory of God? Or am I going to wait? and give glory to God alone, to see God as most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, and he'll bless me when he's good and ready to, in his perfect time, and for his glory. So our lives and our church, there to be a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God, that God would be lifted up. And what's beautiful in that is that it is the message of the gospel, isn't it? That the gospel is not about us taking and grabbing. The gospel isn't about... There's something here, and I've I've won the victory. I went north, and look at all my great military strategy and all the good things that I've done, and I can just grab everything now because of who I am. But the gospel is, is following Melchizedek, is saying God is most high. God has lifted up, and he has chosen to come and to give us victory over sin by what Jesus has done. That Jesus came, died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin because we couldn't then he was victorious over death in his resurrection because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we would have faith in him alone, then he will be lifted up. He will be glorified. He will be seen as great. And so our salvation is a witness to the truth that every good thing comes from the gracious and powerful hand of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this this strange story to our ears here in Louisville, Kentucky in 2012. How strange to think of these kings warring and Lot and Abram. Yet, Lord, we thank you that your word is true, applies to our lives. But Some of this is just, it's kind of abstract. It's hard to really see it, but help us to know uh, how to apply this, how to think deeply on this overarching principle that our that our wives should should glorify you. What does that look like? What does that look like for me, for us as individuals? What does that look like for our church? Help us to know what that might be, Lord, to give us wisdom in different situations where where we have options and where sometimes the easy route maybe isn't the route we should take. but we need we need to know your mind on these things. So we ask for your help. But we thank you again for opening our eyes, for hearing our prayer when we pray and ask you to help us to see that you have done that. So apply these words to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.